0: All right. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes seven. I'm going to go and leave that on Ecclesiastes seven. So it has been a while. Uh, those that will watch this online, watch it right after another, one right after another. But as far as we're concerned, it's been a good month since we've been in the Book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, maybe uh, five weeks. We're finishing up Ecclesiastes 7. I, I never enjoy a large space right in the middle like this because we, we're jumping back into context. And so we are going to jump back into context uh, this morning. And I will catch you up a little bit on what we have uh, been talking about. But today, as we finish Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to do so with a stern warning That comes from drawing out from the well of Solomon's experiences, what he experienced in his own life, the difficulties of his own life, and we get to learn from them. Many uh, times already we have mentioned that when it comes to truth, there are two primary ways to learn the lessons of life, right? There's the way of learning by hearing. So somebody tells you this is wisdom, this is right, you need to do this. And you hear and you, you learn and you obey and you learn the lesson the easy way. And then there's the hard way. And the hard way is to whether or not you heard the lessons or not, you have to make the mistakes. You have to go through the process. You have to get the wounds. You have to have the scars. You, you go through it the hard way. And you learn the lessons the hard way. Much of what we find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, I heard the easy way, but I didn't quite believe it. I knew, I knew it was wisdom, but I wanted to prove it. So I went and did everything that wisdom told me not to do. And on the other end of it, I can tell you wisdom was right, that this life, that riches, that, that, um, pleasures of the flesh, it, it's, it's vanity and vexation of spirit. It's empty. And today is a day of warning that pulls back the curtain on an element of life which is essential to consider, especially in the age in which we live. It challenges some of the deepest and most entrenched elements of modern society and culture. And as always, I'm going to teach first, and then I'll expand upon that teaching with application and understanding. We do this because this is how we ought to study the Bible. When you study the Bible, read it, understand what it's saying, and then draw out application. It's so important that we do that process, that we don't just read it and say, well, I think this about it, I think that about it. No, we need to know what the Bible's telling us first. What does God want us to know? What is the Bible saying? And then after we draw that out, then we'll allow the Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. So as we begin today, in verse 23, the Bible says this, Solomon writing, all this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. We're obviously jumping into context here. Made perfectly clear by the fact that we have a pronoun without an antecedent. All this. All this. What is the all this that Solomon Solomon is speaking concerning? All this have I proved with wisdom. What is all this? Well, it's what we spoke about last time we were together. Verses 19 and 20. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise city more than ten mighty men which are in the city. And then he says in verse 20... For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Solomon says, I've proved this with wisdom. Also, as we had talked about last time we were together, that a man should not be righteous over much, over wise, over wicked, or foolish. Solomon says, I have proved this with wisdom. I've proved with wisdom that there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. I have proved with wisdom. Wisdom taught me these things. Wisdom validated these things to me. But then I say, wait a minute. Solomon says he's proved these things with wisdom. But then he went out and he proved them with error too, didn't he? And this goes back to what we said a minute ago. There are two ways to learn. There's the easy way, listening to wisdom. And the hard way, listening, learning from our mistakes. Solomon made the mistake. So what does it mean that he says, I proved these truths... By wisdom. And he explains this in the next little phrase there. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. He tested, he proved these claims by wisdom, and then realizing that wisdom taught him these truths, that wisdom says don't do these things, that wisdom warned him against certain avenues and aspects of life, he said I will be wise, but then he says wisdom was far from me, He knew wisdom. He knew the right path, but he chose to walk the wrong path anyway. That's what he's saying here. He said, I, I've proved it with wisdom. I know what the wisdom is. After all, Solomon was the wisest, perhaps the wisest man that ever lived. God had gifted him with supernatural wisdom. He knew wisdom. He knew what it was, but he said, I'm going to take the other path. It was far from me. It's not that he didn't have it in his head. It's not that he didn't have the wisdom with him that God had given it to him. But he rejected wisdom. He walked away from wisdom. He walked against the path of wisdom in order to prove wisdom. And the question we ask today is, how did this happen to Solomon? What caused him to ignore wisdom and to pursue a lifestyle of self-indulgence and sin? What was so powerful, so alluring in Solomon's life that he was willing to yield what he knew to be true in order to follow a path that he knew to be destructive. And I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. Really quickly, I'm going to tell you what it was. And then we're going to expand upon it in in our text and our application. The Bible tells us that Solomon's wives drew his heart away from the Lord and drew him towards false gods. It was Solomon's relationships with these many, many women that drew his heart away from God. And that's where we're going with this today. Continuing in the text, verses 24 and 25, Solomon says, That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon continues to speak about this wisdom which was far from him, and he says, that which is far off, that which is exceeding deep, who can find it out? You know, we live in an age where we have knowledge, unlike perhaps any of the ages that have gone by, because we are able at this point to preserve and accumulate knowledge, right? We don't just have to pass it down. I'm sure before the flood, there was a lot of knowledge. Because people live to be nearly a thousand years old. Can you imagine how much information you could gain and pass on in nearly one thousand years of living? If you had some eight hundred, nine hundred years of, of full strength in your body, where you could learn and you could make mistakes and you could grow and you could ambit- you could be ambitious. And then each generation is being born 30, 40, 50 years in- into your 900 year old life. And then you can raise them and you can take multi-generational knowledge to, to new levels, right? And so we might say that that time they-, they-, they might compete with us as far as knowledge is concerned. But we have that now today, don't we? We're only living 80 years if we're if we're healthy and doing well, 90 years, something like that. And yet, through internet archiving, through the printing press, we have the width and breadth of the world's knowledge at our fingertips. We know about the human genome. We study microscopic organisms. You can see a point in the distance, and if you see a point in the distance, you can get there. If you randomly point to a place on on a globe, 99 times out of 100, you could get to that point, wherever it is on the globe that you point to, 99 times out of 100, you can get there. That's amazing. But there are still many things that are beyond our comprehension, aren't there? Modern man has not successfully reached the depths of the ocean. We don't know what's down there. Modern man gazes into the reaches of outer space and wonders what's out there. We've seen some things, but we don't know what all is out there. Modern man still fails to substantiate the essence of the breath of life. What is life? Modern man falls short of explaining the phenomena of love, of loyalty, of man's intrinsic need for community, for fellowship. Man can't explain animal instinct how a mother bird can knock her baby out of a nest and how the vast majority of times mama bird does that baby instinctively is able to fly they don't learn to fly like our children learn to ride a bike start with four wheels and get down to two or have mom and dad hold or whatever it might be a process of learning they don't do that when the bird is physically able to fly mama says okay Go fly. We don't know how that works, except that it is built into them to know. We can't explain it. Solomon says there's much about wisdom which he knew, but that he didn't trust. He knew man was a sinner, that there was no, that there was, uh, there was not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. He knew of wickedness and folly, but he didn't trust wisdom. He wanted to know by experience. He wanted to plumb the depths Of the human experience. And so he searched it out. He applied his heart to know. To search. To seek. He applied his heart to understand wickedness. Foolishness and madness. By experience. And we know this. Solomon has told us this twice already in Ecclesiastes one seventeen. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. He, he gives us the end right there at the beginning. Right, he says, I did all of these things. I tried all of these things. It was all empty, vanity, and vexation of spirit. He said it again in Ecclesiastes two verse twelve. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do which cometh after the king, even that which uh, which hath been already done? And he was talking there, of course, about the people that would follow him and how it's vanity and vexation of spirit to do all his building projects and whatnot because he'd just hand them off to some fool to destroy. So Solomon tells us he's gone down this path. He's tested wisdom by doing evil and it has not worked out well for him. We continue in verse 26 and he says this, almost it seems like out of the blue. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets. And her hands as bands, who whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Don't miss this. As Solomon is considering the regrets of his life, the things which wisdom told him that he should not do, that wisdom told him that he chose not to believe, that he chose to pursue sin instead, he pinpoints one in which he harbors so much regret that he says this path of life is more bitter than death itself. And he calls this path of life the path toward the woman whose heart is snares and nets her hands as bands. An unchaste woman. A woman who uses her beauty and allurement to gain men's attentions and then to ensnare him in her ways. The woman who is actively seeking to lead men into sexual sin. The woman who makes a business, who makes a game out of toying with men, attempting to cause them to give themselves to her and commanding this power over them. Solomon says, if a man wants to please God, he will go out of his way to stay away from these types of women. But the man who loves sin will be taken by her. We'll talk more about this. This is where we're going with our application today. But take careful note of just how grave Solomon's warning is here. He doesn't just say, watch out, this one can mess you up. He says, falling into the snare of the loose woman, the willing woman, the snare of sexual lust is more bitter than death to a man. A warning I don't think can come much stronger than this. And do take note of Solomon's qualification to make this point. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He understood this. By experience, as all of Ecclesiastes is the fruit of Solomon's experience. This one is as well. He had quite a large pool of women from which to assess character. And he came to a conclusion, aided, of course, by the Holy Spirit. He says this, verses 27 to 29. Behold, this I have found, have I found, excuse me, saith the preacher, counting one by one, to find out the account which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all these have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. So Solomon comes to a conclusion. He says this, and remember the context, there is not a just man upon the earth who doeth good and sinneth not. He says that as he has studied people, as he has counted them one by one to find out the account. That's what he says here. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one By one to find out the account. I've taken an account of every person that I have seen. And he says, as I've assessed the character, I've come to this conclusion. I've tallied them up and I found that he says in verse 29, God made men upright, but man has corrupted himself. With inventions. The word inventions there is not saying that men ought to invent things such as the telephone or the microprocessor or the automobile. The word inventions there is a word which means concoctions or um, scheming. It's a word which means that man finds creative ways to sin, doesn't he? There's always a way. And when you finally seem to take care of one area where you finally uh um, taught and people understand that this is wrong, they find a new creative way to sin. That mankind was made up right in Adam But that we have sought out many inventions. It's a similar idea to what we would find in Psalm 106, 29, and then 39, where the Bible says, speaking of Israel, thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. And then verse 39, thus they were defiled with their own works and went a whoring with their own inventions. This is the idea of inventions here. Men creatively rebelling against God. Uh, Israel had everything that, that, that uh, God would ask of them right in front of them. And yet they were constantly finding new ways to offend God's holiness, right? Uh, the, God provided for them manna and they would complain about manna because they wanted quail. Uh, God would lead them through the Red Sea and immediately they complained about water, as if God couldn't give them water, if God could dry up uh, the the ground and and, and part the Red Sea for them. They were constantly finding new and creative ways to be evil. And Solomon says, this is what I found, that man is tirelessly finding ways to corrupt himself, ignoring the law of God. And this is what Solomon was looking for. Those who are upright as God intended and created them to be. And Solomon says, though men were upright at one point, though God created them to be upright, they have corrupted themselves. Now, I want to give us insight, this insight, before looking into verse 28, because verse 28 is kind of um, a tricky one. He says in verse 28, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Solomon effectively is saying here there's one man in a thousand that is upright and there's no women that are upright. Now when you first hear that, you say, wow, that's not very nice. You think of of what Solomon is saying here and you might think, ah, here he is being that... that uh, Woman hater. He just talked about the dangers of the woman that's more bitter, bitter than death. This man is angry at women and he hates women, but he doesn't hate women. That's not what he's saying here. The concept of one in a thousand in Hebrew could be literal, but it could also be idiomatic. In other words, we, we have many idioms in the English language. If I were to say, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Anybody who has a firm command of the English language knows what I mean. What I mean is it's really raining hard. Now, if you're from another another country and you come here and you're learning English and you hear somebody say it's raining cats and dogs outside, you're going to be quite confused. But if you understand the idioms of a culture, the idioms of a language, then that's not going to confuse you. And you're not going to take that statement and try to make it literal, right? Because that would just be silly. Another idiom that we have in our language is the idiom one in a million, right? A one in a million chance. So if we were uh, playing basketball, let's say, and I went to the other side of the house where I couldn't see the hoop, and I um, throw the ball over the house... And I try to get it in the basket when I can't see and I'm just basically eyeballing it. We would say that that's a one in a million chance, right? That's a one in a million chance that you'd get that. Now, we haven't actually tallied up the statistics. We haven't actually sat down and done the test to know what is the statistical possibility that me throwing the ball from the other side of the house, it will actually hit and, and get into the hoop. We haven't done that. We're just saying by a one in a million chance, it is extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely that this could ever happen. Like there would have to be very strange circumstances for this to be able to happen. It's a one in a million chance. Now if I were to walk one mile away and then try to make a basket, I'm gonna throw the ball a mile to get it into the basketball hoop. That's not even a one in a million chance, right? At that point you say there's no chance because it is physically impossible for me to th- Throw a basketball a full mile and then get it into a basketball hoop. That is a 0% chance, not even a one in a million chance. So if one in a thousand here, which it is a Hebrew idiomatic expression, it can be used that way. If one in, in a thousand here is, is that concept of one in a million, an expression of extreme unlikelihood, And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon is saying that there's a one in a thousand, a one in a million chance to find a man who is upright. And there's no chance of finding a woman that's upright. Well, then we've got two possibilities. Either Solomon is a woman hater and he, for some reason he thinks that there might be some men who are upright but no women that are upright. Or, under the inspiration of the Holy Holy Spirit, Solomon was leaving the window open for there to be a man who is upright. But not leaving the door open for there to be a woman that is upright. Because throughout the course of history, there will be, there was, there is one man who is upright, wasn't there? There was one man who was upright. John the Baptist was baptizing over the River Jordan. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So Solomon is not saying here, every once in a while you'll find a good man, but you'll find no good women. He's already covered that in verse 20. There is not a man upon the earth, a just man upon the earth, that doeth good and sinneth not. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe what Solomon is saying here is that I'm going to give it a one in a million chance with men because there is coming a man named Messiah who will be upright. And I'm giving it a no chance with women because Messiah is not going to be a woman. So I don't believe Solomon here is hating on women. I believe he's just under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit being doctrinally and theologically accurate to remind us that there will be a, a one in a million man Who will be upright, who then will be able to die for the sins of mankind. And by the way, if that, if my interpretation is right, then the Catholic doctrine of Mary being perfect goes out the window, which we can go to plenty of other verses that would prove that as well, right? But this would be another reason to substantiate that concept that there is no perfect woman. And there's no perfect man save one, the one in a million man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I can't tell you that that is what Solomon is saying here. But that's what I believe Solomon is saying here. And it would certainly make sense theologically, doctrinally and such. Now, that's all. That's as far as we're going to go today in our text. And I gave you a little bit of academic stuff there. But I'm going to go back to verse 26, and we're going to park on this concept of what Solomon says here, the fruit of his experience, and I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and her hands as bands, Who whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. And I want to focus in on this today. I'm going to speak both to men and women today, first to men, then to women, in regard to this concept of Well, I'm calling the willing woman. And the warning that I want to give to men today, men, beware of what I'm calling the willing woman. And this is a warning which everybody needs to hear. There's no one in this room that is exempt from the temptation toward sexual allurement and sexual sin. If you're a father in this room, you need this for your children, particularly, may I say, for your daughters. If you're a young man or or, or uh, even an old man in this room today, you need it for yourself. And if you're an older woman in here today, you need it as well, particularly for your children. And before we begin this point, before I, I really park on this point of be, being careful, beware of the willing woman, I'd like us to, to make a couple of things very clear about this before we begin. Number one, not all willing women are intentionally so. When the Bible speaks of willing women, these types of women, the unchaste woman, it uses language that comes across as very intentional. That every woman who ensnares a man knows full well what she is doing and is doing what she is doing with complete intention to gain at his expense. And there is a a, a group of women that are this way. And unfortunately in our culture today, that group of women is getting larger as women become uh, by by uh, um, degrees less. Less virtuous, and society and culture become less virtuous. There are those women who are actively seeking to destroy men by appealing to their sexual appetite or by appealing to the, the way that God has created them. Women who sell their bodies and their and seduction for money and attention and fame. But, and I'll cover this more particularly when we talk to women this morning. We actually live in a culture which is so lacking in discernment that many women are acting like those kinds of willing women, the unchaste woman, without even thinking about it. Acting this way in general ignorance and with general lack of intention. So this point is not intended to be an attack upon women. I'm not saying that every woman who does or acts or dresses a certain way is intentionally trying to destroy the hearts of men. But whether a woman is trying to or whether she is not trying to, she may be acting like a willing woman, acting in a way that is dangerous. And this is something that we need to be warned about against as men and warned about as women that you not be one of these. You I may say something that deeply hurts my wife without intending to do so. And while I had no intention of hurting her, it doesn't change the fact that I, her, I hurt her, right? A woman may have no intention through actions, appearance, of, of um, placing herself in the situation where she's being an ensnarement unto a man. But that may not change the fact that she is dressing or acting in such a way that she is an ensnarement unto a man. And both intentionally willing women and unintentional uh, w- women that do this unintentionally can be spiritually dangerous. And the thing about it is, while the intentional willing woman is obvious, because she advertises herself openly, in a society such as ours, where so many women lack the general discretion and, and understanding to... protect themselves and others. The unintentional willing woman can be nearly ubiquitous in our society. Everywhere. And they don't even know it. One more foundational point I want to touch before we really dig in. Number two, men and women are attracted differently. This is something, if you've gone through our About Legacy course, we talk about this more in depth. And it's something that everybody needs to understand or at least think through, that men and women are attracted differently. This is a general rule, and obviously it fluctuates among individuals, but it holds true as a general rule. That by God's design, men are stimulated by what they see, and women are stimulated by what they feel. Women are more emotional than men. Men are far more visual than women. Men are stimulated as well by a desire to rescue or to dominate. And women are stimulated by a desire to be cared for and rescued. The concept is very, very simple to prove by looking at how society functions. This is why fairy tales are so popular. Fairy tales are really popular because they appeal to both ends of the spectrum. The big strong man defeats all of the enemies to rescue the beautiful woman, right? The man says, yes, I want me one of those beautiful women. And I want to be the kind, the man to rescue her so that she wants me because I've rescued her. And the woman says, yes, I want me one of those big strong men who's going to go through fire and go through thorns and go through fill in the blank to rescue me. And so the fairy tale is, in many ways, kind of that perfect storm of what men want, what women want, and how it comes together. And this is why pornography is so much more of a problem for men than it is for women. Because men are so much more visual than women because men are so much more stimulated by visuals than women. Consequently, women have their own form of pornography, which I would call the romance novel. The romance novel appeals more to women because it appeals to their form of attraction. Men want to see, women want to feel, to imagine. Both appeal fundamentally to different manifestations of the same aspect of our sin nature. This is why fashion is so different between men and women. This is why women's fashion changes every 50 seconds and why a man can wear something that's 20 years old and not think a thing about it and still be like all the other guys. Because women don't respond to a man's appearance the way a man responds to a woman's appearance. This is why men's exercise clothes are loose t-shirts and shorts and women's exercise clothes look like they're painted on. Because People know that men don't really care that that women don't really care to see men in tight clothes and men really want to see women in tight clothes. That's what society knows. All around us we can see it. This is why the entertainment industry functions as it does. This is why women pop stars dress and act the way they do when they're performing but men are not held to the same standard. No matter what society says, everything about advertisement and function in society reveals that we all understand this concept that men and women are different, and that what appeals to men is different than what appeals to women, that men are, are, are attracted to visual things and the desire to be the hero, to dominate his surroundings, and that women are attracted emotionally and with the desire to be cared for and rescued. And this is why ugly men, plain men, are able so often to marry up in appearance. Because the beautiful woman, with a less than, than good looking man, the visual appeal simply doesn't matter as much to the woman as it does to the man. The woman wants to be cared for, protected, provided for, stability and leadership. Far more important to a woman than it is to a man. And really what I'm saying here is only confusing or controversial If you have a vested interest in not believing it. Because it is how humans are wired. And we know this. And by the way. This is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently wrong. That men find women beautiful. It's not inherently wrong. That men want to dominate their surroundings. Want to rescue. Want to provide. These are good things. These are God built traits. That God has given to us. To take care of what needs to be taken care of and to pursue a family likewise it is not a bad thing that women want to be protected and provided for that they uh, are uh, that they appeal to the, the the feelings and the emotions that they want that stability and leadership this is not a bad thing god made it this way it's a good thing in fact as long as we understand Where men are, where women are, and then we understand how they must then interact with each other. And if society knows all of this, because society is built this way, fashion is built this way, the the industries are built this way, you don't see men cheerleaders at women's sports games, do you? But you see women cheerleaders at men's sports games. Right, Everything about society is built this way. We can pretend like it's not that way all day. And they're trying, right? They're trying to remove gender and all this stuff. But it is this way. And it's going to be this way. It's how we are wired. And if society knows this, and if we know this, and the Bible teaches this, then surely Satan understands it as well, right? And so this area of God's design is not just an area of God's design, but it can also be an area of vulnerability, Satan knows that if he can fool women into selling their virtue, then he can destroy those women. And Satan knows that if he can persuade, convince men to pursue women who lack virtue, then he can destroy these men. And that brings us back to this first point. Men, beware of the willing woman. The Proverbs are filled with warnings about women who lack virtue. She's sometimes called the strange woman, a label given to a woman who would seek to allure men sexually outside of the God-ordained freedom of marriage. She is sometimes called the evil woman or the whorish woman, a label which more broadly speaks of a woman who seeks to use her attractiveness or her willingness to fulfill a man's lusts to allure men. And the scriptures speak uh, heavily in warnings against these types of women. In Proverbs 5 verses 1 through 11 we read this My son, attend unto To my wisdom and bow thine ear to my understanding that thou mayest regard discretion and that thy lips may keep knowledge for the lips of a strange woman drop as in honeycomb. That's what she says is she sounds good when she says it and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. She will destroy you, men. She will destroy you. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way from her, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed." Solomon warns the young man against the strange woman here, described as saying things which are extremely alluring, extremely seductive, with the intent of drawing you into the web of her sexual sin. And he warns that hers is the way of death, very similar to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that more bitter than death is this kind of woman. But not only that, We see the sexual element of that. We see her allurement through sexuality. But I want to go in another direction today as well. With this concept of her ways being movable. Let me go back. Two slides. Uh, I'm going forward and I'm telling you I'm going back. Let me go back here. uh, At the bottom here of of Proverbs 5. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life. Her ways are movable. Another trait of... A woman who lacks virtue is that she is a movable woman. She is constantly changing, constantly keeping you distracted. One of the ways that I saw this regularly and I saw it regularly and most regularly, um, actually at Christian College was the woman who is constantly in need of being rescuing, of being rescued. There's always something wrong. Always some drama. Constantly. And this need to be rescued constantly. There's always something coming up. She's always in tears. She's always looking for a shoulder to cry on. Men, that's gonna hit you every time because you want to rescue them. You want to be there for them. You want to be that stability for them. You want to, 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 to pull them up. But, and, and, and it's not wrong to be be someone's rescuer but when somebody is in a cycle pinpointing this inborn trait in men to want to rescue them to want to be the hero to want to deliver them and so it's drama after drama after drama after drama do you know what she's doing whether consciously or unconsciously and again women I know it sounds like I'm attacking you I'm really not just please bear with me what she's doing either consciously or unconsciously she is keeping you distracted distracted so that you can't actually discern her character. Because you're going from one drama to the next drama, one rescue to the next rescue. And if you've interacted with a lot of young women in society, I say young women, women in society, you'll see this. The girl that constantly needs a shoulder to cry upon, constantly has a crisis, constantly has something going on, and what's she doing there? I don't, sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't. I've seen it in girls as young as six. When I was working in a daycare back in high school, there was a little girl that was constantly doing this. Why? Because she didn't have a good father figure at home and she wanted some, somebody to give her attention. Constantly twisting an ankle. Constantly hurt. Constantly sad. Constantly something because she wanted that hero. And of course, we want to be that, man. You do. It's in you to want to be that. But when it's constant again and again and again and again, this is the movable woman. This is the woman you're not able to discern her character. You're not able to slow down enough to think about who she really is and how she lacks virtue because she's constantly movable. Her paths are movable. And if this man could just spend a few minutes thinking about who she actually is, he would realize that that's not what he wants. But he's so busy rescuing her that he doesn't, he can't or doesn't. Stop to consider her actual character. And again, I mentioned that this is not always something that is intentional in, 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 to the greatest degree. There are women that do this just because they, they want something. They're looking for something. They don't even really, they're not even really thinking about it. They just know that when I do this, men react. When I do this, I get attention. It's the same reason why some women dress the way they dress because they say, Oh, when I wear this, I get attention. When I act this way, I get attention, and I like the attention, so I'm just, they're not thinking. But men, we need to be careful. Because when this happens, when women do this, it is a predisposition in our nature to want to rescue, to want to be there, to want to help her. What does she actually need? Well, she actually needs a godly Christian woman to come alongside her and help her. And lift her up and mentor and disciple her. So Solomon warns this young man to stay away from such a woman. Proverbs 6, he says a similar thing. Proverbs 6, verses 23 to 29. For the commandment is a lamp, the law is, uh, is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. Neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. And the adulteress will hunt the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon uh, go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So that he that goeth into his neighbour Wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Again, a warning. This time, specifically warning more against the sexual sin element, against adultery. But through a principle which is much more broad, the Bible says it functions to protect young men if they will only listen. From the evil woman who flatters with her tongue and who makes herself beautiful and attractive for the means of ensnaring men. Solomon says, don't believe the flattery. Don't lust after her beauty. Don't let her take you with her eyelids because the consequences are dramatic. No one walks away from sexual sin without spiritual damage. May I say that again? No one walks away from sexual sin without, at the very least spiritual damage Solomon also warns in this passage of financial ruin that a man is brought to a piece of bread we saw it in uh, Proverbs 5 as well she will take you for all that you have and don't discount this do you know that pornography is a 97 billion dollar a year industry and that doesn't even account for prostitution that's just online pornography 97 billion dollars a year there's a lot of men losing a lot of money by means of whorish women Lives are destroyed, families are torn apart, ministries are toppled when men pursue the lusts of women. Men leave their wives to pursue the willing woman. Irreparable harm to children. Churches have crumbled under the weight of confusion and disappointment when pastors have been led astray by the evil woman. And men, you need to stay far away from these types of women. stay far away from the types of women who in action and appearance fail to reflect virtue Virtue, who act like or are willing women. The warning is given strongly in Proverbs 7. Remember, all of this is the fruit of Solomon's wisdom. He says in Proverbs 7 beginning in verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding passing through the streets near her corner and he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and uh, subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. There's a little insight into what these types of women are like. Loud, stubborn, feet abide not in their house. Now, she, now is she without... Now in the streets, and lieth and wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love's For the good man is not at home. He is gone a a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver. As a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Solomon says, I looked out my window and I saw a foolish, foolish man. And this foolish young man thought he was strong enough to pass by the corner of the willing woman without being ensnared by her. He says, I can handle that. It's okay. I know what she's about and I can handle that. So as he's walking toward this woman... She grabs him and she catches him and she begins to talk to him. And of course, no, no, thank you. But then she starts using all the personal pronouns. I've been waiting for you. I I, Everything is about you. You really matter. I want you. She doesn't want him. She wants whoever comes by the corner. She wants his money. But that's not what she says. And with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. And notice how Solomon describes it. As an ox to the slaughter. As one who is walking to his own death. You see the cattle farms out. We, we just drove to Colorado and back not too long ago. And you see the big ranches and all the cattle out there. And they're all in these, these gated, um, th- these fences. And there's fences inside. And you can see that they're all being lined up to be slaughtered. And yet they'll go, they'll go through the gate, they'll go into the fenced area, and they're walking, literally walking to their own death. Solomon says this is what it's like when you listen to, regard, walk after the willing woman. And he says this, that he will be there until a dart strikes through his liver. Now in the Hebrew culture, they used body parts to represent various aspects of life. The heart is the seat of the understanding and of the will. The loins, which is like your upper thigh here, that's the place of strength. The tongue, it's our words. The kidneys was the place of impulse and affection. The bowels, seat of desire, right? my bowels yearned upon, we see in Scripture, meaning that he loved or desired for something. And the liver is the place of honor and integrity. So the idea of a dart that's an arrow being shot through his liver is this, you might leave and no one may ever know you may have had the money to spend but you will not leave with your integrity intact. There will be spiritual consequences. Men, you need to beware of the willing woman. You need to protect yourself from sexual sin, but you also need to protect yourself from the vast number of women out there who don't understand what they're doing and who are seeking to gain your affection and your attention, your allurement, either through the need to be rescued or through what they're wearing and the way that they're acting. They are everywhere. And you need to beware. Don't have anything to do with them on any level other than gospel and and that general friendship idea. Don't try to be their hero. Don't, try, don't be a shoulder to cry on. Don't be their knight in shining armor. Don't envision you pulling them out of their life of sin. Don't be consumed with her beauty. If you see a woman, willing woman in spiritual need and you think she's genuine, as I mentioned, send her to a mature Christian woman for discipleship and you'll see pretty quick whether or not she's genuine. You stay far away because her ways are the ways of death. And what does this mean? It's not just personal interactions. Men, if you use the internet, filter it. If you use the computer, put it in public area if you at all can. If you own a television, have safeguards in place. Have standards in place. If you play video games, guard them carefully. Because video games are are made for who? Teenage boys. What do teenage boys want? Scandal clad women. Right? A plus B equals C. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. Be careful. Just know what's out there. And then be careful who your friends are. Parents, never assume that other parents are as careful as you are. Never has it been, has it been easier to be ensnared in sexual sin. Never has there been a generation where sexual sin is so easily brought into the home. Cell phones. Internet. used to be you at least had to have the courage to go buy a magazine. Not anymore. And with the generation gap and the technology gap, let me tell you this. Parents, your children probably know more about that computer than you do. If they want to hide something, they can. They can. They grew up with this stuff. If they want to hide something, they can I'm not saying be paranoid, but I'm saying be careful and be knowledgeable. No. Put, put, put things in place. Don't be foolish. Don't be like the kid that, that Solomon saw from his window that said, I can go by that corner, no problem. Just stay away from the corner. Men, beware the willing woman. Women, I, it's a warning for you today as well about this culture. What this culture is asking of you, women. Beware of the allurement The allure of allurement. Men keep listening. Fathers particularly keep listening. Second, men, you need to know, as I've mentioned already, that willing women, as we've defined it today, are are not always those that get paid. Those that are in bars and brothels and on street corners. We've talked about how you're wired, women. Beginning in adolescence, women's appearance becomes very attractive to men. And men become attracted to women's appearance. And this is not wrong. This is not a bad thing. Attractiveness is a good thing. But the problem comes in when women go from being attractive to being alluring. Being attractive means you have the qualities and attributes that will attract men to you. This is normal. This is fine. This is right. A lot of you can't do anything about that. If you're pretty, you're pretty. Congratulations, it's not not a bad thing. Being alluring is going out of your way to draw men's attention to yourself. And this is normal as well in the human condition, but it's not biblically proper. A woman of virtue may yet be very attractive, but a woman of virtue will not seek to draw men's attention to her, to allure men by taking advantage of the fact that they are visually stimulated or that they love to rescue, they need To rescue, they need to be that provider and that caregiver. And let me be very clear here. It is the responsibility of every man to contain his lusts and to keep his thoughts captive. It is the responsibility of every man to keep his body and his mind under control. But biblically speaking, virtuous women will make protecting men's eyes and men's minds a priority in their lives because they know how men are attracted. And they will help their brothers in Christ be careful and be right. Women, you can't. It's not your fault if a man's mind is in the gutter. It's not. You can't change his mind. But don't help him get there. And that's something you have control over. And with this in place, before we go to the Bible, let's talk about the concepts of modesty and decency. Modesty, defined in Webster's 1828, as an act or a series of acts consists in humble, unobtrusive deportment as opposed to extreme boldness, forwardness, arrogance, presumption, audacity, or impudence. Modesty is not a principle... Directly related to dress. Did you know that? A lot of times in conservative churches, when they talk about modesty, they're saying women dress modestly, that means dress in a certain way. Dress in a way that doesn't uh, attract attention or does not, not too tight, whatever it is. But that's not really what modesty is about in the, uh, in, in the broader context. As a matter of fact, the times that the Bible uses the word modesty, it's not talking about how tight something is or how short something is. It's talking about how much it draws attention to oneself. Uh, immodesty is rooted in the sin of pride, where a person seeks to draw undue attention to himself in some way for one's own honor and benefit. We've seen many times in the Bible the evil that is pride, that God hates pride, and immodesty is a form of pride. And immodesty is just as much, if not more, of a problem in men in the church than women in the church. And you know, this isn't taught. And the reason why this isn't taught is because we don't really think about what modesty is. But if modesty is drawing attention to yourself, then I'll tell you what, the macho look-at-me attitude of men is immodesty. It just so happens that because women are attracted to men in a different way than men are attracted to women, when it comes to modesty, women's area of particular note is action and appearance, and men's particular area of note is action, really action. So in other words, when a man's trying to attract to a woman, he doesn't wear short shorts. He dominates every man that's around him. He builds things. He shows himself capable, strong, intelligent. That's how, he attra- that's how he tries to attract women. When a woman wants to attract a man, knowing how men are attracted, they do so with visual allurements. This is how we're built. This is how we're made, right? So when men are being immodest, it's when they are attempting to draw undue attention to themselves and it's generally manifested in actions. When women are, attempted to be mod- uh, immo- when women are being immodest, it's generally an outworking of their attempt to draw attention to themselves in the way men would understand through appearance. But immodesty is pride. A matter of the heart, not just a matter of what is hanging on you, what what you're wearing, but a matter of am I seeking to draw undue attention to myself? It's a matter of sin and righteousness. This is not a preference or a standard issue. A good working definition of modesty as we use it at Legacy Baptist Church is this. Modesty is a condition of the heart whereby one exercises purpose restraint through actively removing from oneself any form of personal attention or honor in action or appearance. And what we see here is that this is is not just a woman thing. Men, when you're around women, I, I, I can see it all the way down to my little boy. Boys, when they're around girls, they get silly, they get stupid. They start doing things to try to attract attention. Smack themselves in the face. Smack some other boy in the face. Play king of the hill, right? And men, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Of course, women, you wouldn't. Men, have you ever noticed that a group of men interact entirely differently among each other between when there's a woman there and when there's not? It's entirely different. If there's a woman there, they will... Everything changes if there's a woman there, especially if they're single men. Why? That's immodesty. That's their immodesty coming out. That is them attempting to draw attention to themselves. We need to know this because there's a a, a, a grand number of men in the church who act immodestly regularly and the church doesn't call them out on it because it's called being manly. And yet, the women are preached to all the time see women I'm not picking on you by Bible's definition the measure of a man is not he who is able to dominate his peers and impress all the women the measure of a man is who will lead others unto God and who will live unto God himself meekness strength under control that's the measure of a man sound in doctrine and in faith and in patience men are often tempted to modesty in action because this corresponds to how women are attracted to them right the woman will pick the man who is strongest, the man who is best, the man who can provide for them. So we show that we're that. Likewise then, women, you need to understand that you will be more attempted or more tempted into immodesty in appearance because that's how you'll attract the men. That's how men are attracted to you. Men aren't generally attracted to women who can dominate her peers. <laughs> that's not necessarily an attractive trait. In a crowded room of women, the one who looks the best will be the one that men fight over. Pastor, that sounds shallow. Call a shallow. It's the way it is. And what this means, women, is that your deepest temptation will be to seek men's attention by drawing their attention to your appearance. And women, when you dress to impress, and I'm not just speaking of indecency here, we'll come to that. When you seek through your appearance to draw attention to yourself, there's an immodesty element there. And there's a pride element there, which means there's a sin element there. Now let's make the distinction between immodesty and indecency. When we think of uh, of a woman dressing immodestly, we think of something oftentimes that's too short, too tight, too revealing, right? And this may be true, but based upon our definition, we need to understand it isn't always true. There are many women today who wear things that are uh, too short, too tight, too revealing, But not necessarily with the intention of of drawing attention to themselves, but because that's what culture expects of them, right? So they don't have the intent of being immodest, but they are without question being indecent. Regardless of whether or not they are intending to draw attention to themselves, their actions are indecent and are, are therefore boiling over into a lack of modesty. They are drawing undue attention to themselves, not just in women, but in men. And all throughout the Old Testament, God adamantly warns against indecency. So, let let me say it this way. Decency is a given. You need to cover yourself. This is a given. Modesty is the next step. That you can be covered, but you can still act in such ways that draw attention to yourself. I would often say when we were at Bible college that just because a girl has a skirt down to her knees, which is what was, was the requirement, does not mean that she's a modest woman. And you can see in her actions and immodesty, even if she's dressing in a way that we would call modest. Because modesty is a condition of the heart. It's not a condition of appearance. Indecency, however. Same with men. Men, you can be immodest. You can look the part. You can be decent. You can be covered but still be modest because it's it's a condition of the heart decency however not showing one's own nakedness this is this is found throughout scripture in fact the knowledge of one's own nakedness was the very first indication in the book of of Genesis, that man had fallen to sin, right? He understood morality. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I've got to hasten on here, so I'm not going to read it. But here, they partake of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They find themselves to be naked and they clothe themselves. This was the first instance, the very first thing that happened when they recognized that the the difference between good and evil is that they were naked. Nakedness is in many ways the most basic indicator of our sin nature. It's the most basic indicator that we are fallen. And when we cover that nakedness, it is to to cover the shame of our sin. Every day that you put clothes on is another reminder of the shame of our sin. And in a society that is becoming more and more comfortable with nakedness, do you know what that, that is spiritually indicating? A society that is more and more comfortable flaunting their sin. That's what it is. Men and women alike, look, we need to be decent. This is a decency issue. Nakedness, God hates nakedness. Nakedness is the very foundation of the manifestation of our sin nature. We need to cover ourselves. Leviticus 20 verse 17 warns about a man who would uh, reveal the nakedness of his mother or, or, or um, his sister. And God says it's a wicked thing. And, and as this is the case, whether you and I intend to draw attention to ourselves through exposing ourselves, make no mistake, if it isn't immodest, Exposing ourselves is at the very least indecent. We need to cover ourselves. Likewise, may I just say this? If your clothes are so tight that your body is revealed through your clothes, you're not covering yourself. Just because there's a thin layer of fabric between you and your body does not mean that you're covered. That you're not exposing yourself. Listen, women, if you want to protect the men in your life and ensure that you aren't making it harder for them to look upon you with decency and uprightness to see you and not just the outward you, you need to protect them by through your appearance. Get rid of the tight clothing. Get rid of the short clothing. Get rid of the low clothing. Stop wearing revealing stuff. Draw attention away from your body. Put it on your face. Draw attention away from your appearance. Put it on your character. And may I humbly say this if you can't attract a man without the help of being alluring not attractive be attractive that's, that's fine men, that, that, women, men want a, a, an attractive woman it's not wrong to be attractive but if you can't attract a man without being alluring physically or in actions then you are either trying to attract the wrong kind of a man or your character is deficient and you need someone to come alongside you and teach you how to be a woman of virtue and this brings us back to the concept of immodesty That which is indecent may also be immodest. That which is immodest may also be indecent. But when we consider things which are too tight, too short, too revealing, we are speaking more of decency. What you also need to understand is that you can be decent while also being immodest. And this is what I mentioned before. You can be covered from head to toe but still be attracting undue attention to yourself. And this is actually the warning that we see in the New Testament. The warnings in the New Testament of women to be dressed in modest apparel had nothing to do implicitly with decency. That was a given. Women, cover yourselves. That was a given. That shouldn't have, to, that, that didn't need to be taught. That was there. What they were warning against is women who were wearing too much jewelry. Women who were, who were uh, doing things to attract attention to their appearance by wearing lavish and gaudy clothing. This is apparent in the text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Okay, be modest, right? Well, first they talk about covering yourself with shamefacedness. That's, that's, that's covering yourself. Cover the shame. But then he says not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. That's just drawing too much attention to yourself through other things. Super obvious, loud Wild makeup. Lots of loud, expensive jewelry. Those are immodest. It's immodest. Rather, what should clothe you, what people should see when they see you, what people should understand when they interact with you, is that you are a woman who is arrayed with good works, as becometh a woman professing godliness. Godly works and virtue ought to shine out of you and you ought not to be distracted by the embroidered hair, or the gold or the pearls or the costly array. Now, women, I'm not saying you can't wear makeup. I'm not saying you can't wear jewelry. I, I wouldn't even say that. that that's, that's, that's not for me to say. What I'm saying is you need to be modest. Modesty, the definition, not drawing undue attention to yourself. Right? Some would even take this to the level of hair color. If you come in with green hair, there's probably something immodest about that. I use green because that would never be... a Well, actually, I shouldn't say it. Not in this age, you never know. But there, there's an immodesty aspect to that, right? Are you trying to draw some attention to yourself? Or you're crying out for help, one or the other. We need to be careful. Because it's all immodesty. And, and men, same with you, right? I don't have that problem. Can't, I couldn't get green hair if I wanted. But men... It's the same it's the same principle we need to be modest and that brings us back to our point folks we live in an indecent and an immodest society I fear I have not expressed myself very well today but I pray that the Holy Spirit can do what he what he will with with what I've said women routinely and societally walk around in almost complete exposure today. The vast majority of women are wearing indecent clothes when they shop, when they exercise. In summer, the indecency is short. In winter, the indecency is long, but it's indecent nonetheless. But nothing is left to the imagination, and it is indecent. And not only is it common, it is encouraged in society now, is it not? And it dare not be this way in the church. May I just say that? It dare not be this way in the church. And our daughters need to be taught not to fall for the deceits of becoming an alluring woman. Be attractive. That's fine. But don't fall to the deceit that society is trying to tell you that you need to become an alluring woman. Don't fall for the men that tell you that if you don't allure, then, then you're not attractive or that, that you're not worth, worth anything. Don't fall for that. What I mean is this. Many Christian girls act just like the willing woman, which Solomon says is worse than death. They draw attention to themselves. They flirt and they seduce. They wear provocative and indecent clothing and they don't even know it. In January of 2015, a Christian blogger, her name was Veronica Partridge, wrote a blog post where she said she realized after talking to her husband and talking to many of her husband's married friends that yoga pants were a problem for men. That it makes it hard, now those are the extremely tight, you know, stretchy fitting pants, that it makes it difficult for men with their thought lives when women wear extremely tight fitted clothing around them. Now, I read this blog post and I thought this is, this is you know, decency 101 here. So she writes this news of this this blog post, and she said that as a Christian woman, I want to protect the men in my life, and I'm not going to wear these anymore. And I thought, well, praise the Lord, until I read the comment section of that article, and I found that there are very few women that commented on that article who saw any problem with tighter revealing clothing at all. They simply said, well, men need to get over themselves and start protecting their own minds and get their minds out of the gutter. And women, may I tell you this? We've already said. A man whose mind is in the gutter his mind is in the gutter. But it doesn't work this way. It doesn't work that way. Not only are the commands in Scripture of not causing a brother or sister to stumble pervasive, but Titan revealing clothing, look, it's not something that men can control. We're wired to appreciate feminine beauty. We're wired to appreciate things visually. This is not a... You're just an ungodly man issue. This is dangling a carrot in front of a horse and and, and not letting him eat it. And may I just say this as well. Christian men have enough of a struggle fighting against our thought lives just walking into a Walmart or driving down the road and seeing a billboard or a commercial on television or whatever it might be. My fight should not have to extend to the church and to the women of the church. It should not. I shouldn't have to fight here. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds harsh or whatever. Men should not have to come into this building or come around this group of people and have to fight that battle. This should be our place of rest because we have to go out into that world and we have to fight that battle every day. And it's a battle because of the way God has wired us and the way our sin nature has perverted it. And may I also say this, women? If you're getting unwanted attention from men you interact with, the first thing I would do is assess what you're wearing. Then I would assess how your body language is. Then your words. Are you, are you alluring them? And then secondly, are you acting in the way that you need a rescuer? Are you being one of those that's constantly needing to be rescued? Because while there are plenty of dirty men out there, oftentimes men that will pursue a... Men will stop pursuing a virtuous woman because there's plenty of other women out there that they can get what they want out of. So if they're pursuing you relentlessly, either they're just a deeply dirty man, which is possible, or there's something that you're doing, perhaps unconsciously. And you know what? Ask dad. Ask dad. Because fathers, we've been there. Dads, protect your girls. Protect your wife. No, please don't leave the house in that. Please put on a sweater. She's gonna get angry at me. You're protecting her. You're protecting her. Solomon warned that more bitter than death was the willing woman who ensnared men with her actions and with her appearances. And we live in an allurement culture You will be expected to act that way and you need to be ready to say no, young ladies. Whether it be... It's no longer just women who are offered money to prostitute themselves. Texting, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, social media. If you're on those, there will be men who will solicit you. And you need to be careful because the culture is asking you... and. Going to tell you that you're not worth it if you don't go that way. Don't follow the lies. And this is where the two meet. Young men who have pursued the willing woman through pornography now expect that their female peers would would, would, would go in that direction. So that seven out of ten girls in a particular survey between the ages of twelve and fifteen said that they had had a boy at school ask them for indecent pictures of themselves. Seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. Why? Because boys are looking at pornography and they say this is what women are for and then they go into their peer groups and they say this is what I want from you. Guard yourself. Pornography has turned boys and men into sexual predators and they don't even know it. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. And this has turned many women wanting acceptance, wanting these boys to like them into willing women without even knowing it. Just so that they can feel accepted. And it's everywhere. And don't play the game. Don't act like willing women. Guard your integrity. Guard your virtue. Don't just take half measures. Don't just look and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Jesus said the church would be set apart by its distinction, not because the church is less indecent than the world around it, but rather because in a world of indecency, the church would be virtuous. In no part of the Christian life do we compare ourselves to unbelievers in order to argue for our own success. Don't say, well, I'm better than him or I'm better than her and you're looking at the world so I'm okay. Compare yourself to scripture and if you're not being virtuous and you're not being modest and you're not being decent, change yourself. Men, this goes for you as well. I'm not just preaching to the women here. If you are living in immodesty, if you are seeking to to If you're pressuring women, if you're looking for allurement, if you're headed toward that corner, stop. Change direction because death and hell and destruction are on that path. I'm going to stop there. Had a few more slides left, but I need to be finished. As I close today, I remind you. point three, man can find lasting satisfaction. But you know what? Lasting satisfaction, men, will not be found in the the willing woman. Young ladies, lasting satisfaction will not be found in the man who only wants you for what he can get out of you physically. Lasting satisfaction is found in God's way. The young men who are sober, who are Godly, who are sound in doctrine, Titus two. The young woman who is chaste, who is virtuous, also Titus two. This is what you want to be. If you have a problem, men, if you have a problem in this area, if you've already gone down that path, may I encourage you to to take whatever steps necessary to get off of that path of following these types of women, of of pornography, of whatever it might be. If you need help, get help. Get help. Get accountability. You need to get off this path, which Solomon said is more bitter than death. Young women, if there's something today that you've pinpointed in yourself that there's a little bit of this in me, I've fallen for this bit of culture, may I encourage you to root it out. That may mean throwing away some clothes, That may mean changing the way you interact with men. That may mean backing off of some relationships. Do it if you need to do it. So that we are not putting ourselves in this place of bitterness as Solomon described it. The Bible says that Solomon's wives turned his heart away from the Lord. It led him on this path this path of deep regret in his life. And let's not do the same. Let's close in prayer.